Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining me today, it is Tom Clark and Alison Rudd. Alison, good afternoon. How do we find you today? Uh, you find me sat next to a Tudor chess board oh. and I've realised one of the pawn drummers is decapitated and it's oh, no. it's upsetting me. Because oh, I've had I've had this chessboard about eighteen years, and it's remarkably intact, apart from this decapitation. And and can we understand what's happened? Why why has he been just decapitated? Well, it's um, the good news is it means the chessboard's being used, and that that means that means things get well things fall over. So um, it's a shame though. I need some super glue, Natalie. Sort it out. Okay. All right. Well, once we've got this pot out of the way, you can you can sort that out. Um, Tom, how are you doing? I presume you're not sat next to a Tudor chessboard. No chess-related dramas for me, Nat. Um, although I have got a renewed uh, respect for all athletes after playing a bit of park cricket at the weekend and for the last three days being basically unable to walk or move or do anything what? Uh, after a couple of fairly average overs of leg spin. So I'm either just clearly not very fit uh, or I should you know, be much kinder to all these athletes out there who put their body through the mill. Every uh, every week, <laughs> uh, indeed, it's, it's a lot tougher than it looks. I can tell you. Well, I think we should ask Alison because we know Alison. You like to play your tennis. You like to play your football. What what do we make of Tom's fitness standards? Uh, depressing and embarrassing. But you know, if he wants to admit that on air, fine. But come <laughs> oh, on, Tom, wow. <laughs> you're young. You're young. <laughs> Gone studs up early. I thought. I thought... <laughs> Here's me thinking with Gregor away, I'd get a nice, friendly, you know, atmosphere yeah. for the podcast. And Alison's just come steaming in. I can't believe this, honestly. Anyway. Well, I think you have a mental issue, Tom. I think you've got to... I think you're expecting to feel knackered after you play any sport at all. Well, that, that might be it. That might be it. Is Maybe it a mental I'm, thing, Tom? Is that what I think we're saying? I'm, I think I'm probably just working too hard, you know, if the boss oh, is listening. Oh, here we go. I just, um, <laughs> too... too too many hours at my desk and not enough hours in the nets is clearly the issue. So maybe yeah, a bit of practice uh, over the coming weeks and we'll see if we can improve the standards a bit. Well, hopefully then in a few weeks you can tell us if you've improved. But we have got loads to get through today as we finally bid farewell to what was a mammoth 2019-20 season. And of course, we have to start in Lisbon. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Bayern Munich are champions of Europe for the sixth time after a 1-0 win over PSG in the Champions League final in Lisbon. Kingsley Coman haunted his former club. The Frenchman was Bayern's only pre-match change from the semi-final victory over Lyon and vindicated his inclusion on the hour when he headed the winner. It was a moment to savour for Bayern and their manager Hansi Flick, installed as interim boss last November, who won the trophy he came so close to winning as a player in 1987 to complete a treble winning season for only the second time in the club's history. An 11th consecutive Champions League victory further underlined Bayern's dominant campaign as they became the first team in European Cup history to win every match en route to lifting the trophy. So Alison, were Bayern Munich worthy winners for you? Well, you've you've just explained why they were. They, <laughs> they dominated the competition. But also, I think Bayern... They they were they were worthy winners because I think even neutrals were were rooting for them. Mm. They I mean I don't know Bayern of old used to be a bit too of a, much of a machine. Um, you sort of felt like they overly dominated their domestic league and there wasn't much fun or joy about them as a team. I mean I'm talking about sort of general perception, but I think they've they sort of wormed their way into people's hearts actually. They they. They're exciting to watch. They put normally they put scoring before defending. They they put a self belief before worrying about the opposition. Uh, they've got individual lots of individual players. We've grown. They've been around forever, and we've grown to love. I felt they they sort of had their name on the trophy from an, an early stage, and um, I think we were sort of all feeling a bit pro German because of the way they operated Project Restart, they showed the rest of us that it was possible to play football again and that you could be someone like Bayern Munich and navigate that path well and not let it become a leveller. They they seem to do everything just right. So they're a mix of sort of Germanic efficiency, flair and newfound uh, affection, I think. So in, in all those ways, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad they... They won. And normally you would root for the team that had never won it, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people were thinking, oh, I can't, I'm quite fond of Bayern. I like them. I'm glad they've won. Do you think that also there may well have been an anti-PSG bias because of their newfound wealth and all that comes with that? Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, if it had been Bayern v, I don't know, Lyon, maybe, it would have been different as, as, as a French opposition. But... I, I, I think actually no. That isn't the main reason why Bayern Munich were worthy winners. Winners to answer your question, because mm. I think we've gone past the tipping point of feeling antagonistic towards PSG's wealth, and we're looking at them as individuals and as a unit. And they, they were trying ever so hard. They'd got further than they ever had before. I felt they'd learned their lessons of you know being too mercenary doesn't do do you any good at elite level competition you've got to find that unique something that makes you a, a team and makes you greater than the sum of your parts and they've always been at the highest level less than the sum of their parts and I felt they were starting to click and be more likable as a team um, I think as the way the game started a lot of people who were antagonistic about the, the, the 700 million that PSG had spent on the team we're actually thinking, oh, you know, they're trying and they, they're looking good and they're, they're, they're ruffling the feathers of, of the Bayern defence. 
I think a lot of people probably shifted at that moment and thought, well, you know, I don't hate PSG. But I think ultimately over over the whole of the tournament and then over the whole of the 90 minutes of the final, um, I, I think, again, it was about Bayern being worthy. We were expecting goals in this final, Tom. The two teams had scored 69 goals in the competition this season between them. Why wasn't it more end-to-end, do you think? I think, firstly, we should... Um give uh, Gregor a bit of credit because he said exactly that on uh, Thursday's show that it might be a tight uh, tactical affair I think credit must go to PSG as Alison alluded to there they'd uh, come up with a way of playing under Thomas Tuchel that allowed the likes of Neymar and Mbappe to excel but also made them a bit more solid and they competed really really well Um, I would like to just go back to Alison's point about Bayern Munich in respect of the joyfulness of the way they play Um, they are constantly you sense just trying to score goals I mean the, the, the one goal they did manage to score as the cross comes in from Kimmich I think they've got at least four if not five players in the PSG penalty area and it's almost you know kind of nostalgic to the old days of you know maybe Manchester United in the 90s where it was get the ball wide get the ball in the box and but they're just constantly trying to score and that's what the best teams do that's what Manchester City do did a few years ago it's what Liverpool have done this season when teams try ever so hard to stop you you find a way to score within your um, pattern of play and your belief system so that's why um, Bayern Munich were definitely worthy winners but also PSG deserve a lot of credit for ensuring that it wasn't this kind of goal fest because um, they they performed incredibly well and had a few good chances themselves it must be said you know Mbappe had a good chance Neymar Mm -hmm. chance right at the end Uh, Manuel Neuer made a couple of good saves and you know, it could easily have opened up into more of a goal fest uh, had a few of those early chances gone in. Tom mentioned there, Alison, that, that Gregor said it perhaps wasn't going to be the goal fest that many had predicted. Where were you thinking this was this was going to end up? Were you thinking it was going to be as cagey as it was or were you expecting a bit more of a thriller? Um, I was hoping for a thriller, but actually you doesn't have to be a goal fest to be a thriller. I mean, I think tactically, and it was a very entertaining and absorbing final. I did, uh, I liked the way I responded emotionally to it, which was pretty quickly, I thought, ah, Bayern are going to allow PSG to blow themselves out. And that is exactly what happened. I, I, all the, you know, those early chances and through most of the first half, really, that PSG had, you felt, oh, they've really got the collective going and they are pressing and they are working so hard. And Bayern just had faith in their ability to withstand that. And you could see they could not, there was no way PSG could keep that up. Partly because I don't think they've ever had to do it before. This is not what they do week in, week out. It's not that, It's not the way they operate. They win domestically because they have the best players by a distance who can pull a you know a dribble or a sachet or a cross out the bag that no one else can deal with they had to add stuff to their normal game plan and they you could see them wilting as the second half progressed because they just weren't used to it and i i i felt as i'm sure any 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 of us felt that that Bayern's superiority they have that thing don't they where they just they don't wobble i just didn't feel although PSG probably carved out more opportunities than we were expecting. I didn't. I didn't get a sense at all that, that Bayern were worried about it, which which comes from knowing you've always got goals in you, I guess. Mm. Well, the match winner Coman 
who started as a teenager at PSG, has now won an astonishing 20 honours. And he's only 24. Overall, then, that's two and a half trophies per campaign for the wing wonder, who moved to Juventus for two seasons in 2014, although he spent the second of those on loan with Bayern. Remarkably, he's never gone a season without winning a league title and incredibly won two in the same year. I'm talking about 2015-16 due to his participation in games for both Juventus and Bayern. Tom, is there any any sort of way that can we debate the standard of those league wins? In that, do we think it might have been easier for him to won trophies in France, Italy and, and Germany compared to, let's say, England and, and Spain? I think this is always such a strange question in a way. And we all, <laughs> we, for years we've talked about the superiority and dominance of the Premier League. And it's the best league in the world, you know, when Norwich beat Manchester City. And I've always found that such a strange assertion, really, that because of supposedly weaker team beats a top team that makes the league a better league it makes the league more fun potentially and more entertaining and uh, it gives more for us journalists to talk about and debate but I don't know whether it means that the standard is any better Mm. I would say that particularly when we think about Bayern Munich they're so far and away you know maybe with Liverpool just behind them in terms of teams across Europe this season Um, and I think with PSG as well that they would probably give a good game to most teams in the Premier League. So it, the standard of the leagues are overall, maybe it might be easier to beat the teams lower down. But then if you actually look at some of the teams that uh, Bayern, for example, are competing with, you know, in the Bundesliga this season, Borussia Dortmund, RB Leipzig, um, Borussia Mönchengladbach, Bayer Leverkusen, they're the four teams that come after. You know, we're talking about lots of players... Um, being signed to the Premier League from those clubs. We're constantly idolising Borussia Dortmund and all they're trying to do with the young players they're bringing in and the style of play. So I think particularly for for Bayern to say that it's an easier league because they are superior is a little bit misguided. And um, I think in the French league as well, look, you know, Lyon beat Manchester City. The standard is improving and I think it's a little bit lazy to generalise and say, oh, you know, Spain and England... Uh, the, the two strongest leagues because they're the most competitive. I, d- I don't think that's true anymore. Alison, do you think we are guilty of being perhaps a little Anglo-centric in our thoughts of Premier League superiority? Yeah, I think what we do is we see the Premier League as one entity and we lump continental, continental Europe into another category where they lack our intensity, athleticism, passion, uh, even the way we design our stadiums and the fans we get in and so on. We think our product is just superior altogether. And I don't think we're entirely misguided to do that. If you go to um, a mid-table clash in the French first division, you won't, you won't get, <laughs> you will not get the, in normal times, you will not get the passion and intensity and that you would get in, in the Premier League. And I think we have more, more unpredictable outcomes as well. I think overall, there is a, the, the gulf is more discernible abroad than it is in the Premier League. It, so that any one game, it is possible to believe there's going to be an upset or there's going to be something unexpected. But I think I think you know, you averages out in most other leagues that you kind of get what you expect. Does, um, I agree with Tom. I think the best teams in all the other leagues would probably 
do really well in the Premier League um, and maybe you know come close to winning it. But the the product overall, I think, is better in England, and I think that's why so many top players do not want to retire until they've experienced it here. To the game itself then again and PSG fans were left furious that Kylian Mbappe was not awarded a penalty that would have given them the chance to get back into the Champions League final against Bayern. The Frenchman was brought down inside the box in the second half with PSG 1-0 down but the referee was quick to wave it away pointing at the ball. On replay it was clear that Joshua Kimmich had actually come through the back of Mbappe catching the back of his foot before making contact with the ball. Uh, Alison I mentioned you know you love your tennis you love playing football but you're also our resident referee was it a penalty for you no it was not and it was not a penalty because <laughs> because um well first of all for various reasons first of all the referee uh daniel osato i don't know if you recall but his positioning was quite superb it was as if he knew this was going to be the defining moment or a potentially defining moment of the game his he was leaning in he, he knew Mbappe was on one of his runs. It was going to, it could possibly end with someone falling over. He wanted to make sure there wasn't a dive or a foul or whatever happened, he would be on top of it. So he was, first of all, letting the players know, I'm looking at you, which just put, might put some players off diving. Uh, it, it, he, and what I was really impressed with was the fact that he wasn't sort of stepping back from the action and assuming the cameras would take over if there was an incident, which is increasingly happening amongst referees, I have to say. They're sort of, they're sort of take, take, saying, oh, well, it's not my responsibility anymore. So he was taking responsibility and he had an absolutely superb view. And, you know, he is the on-field referee. He has that another dimension to interpreting what's happened that you don't get from watching on a screen. And he was very clear that he felt it wasn't a penalty I agree. If you look at it a lot on the replay, you can see there's contact. But I think you could also argue that Mbappe at that point had, was not in full control of the ball and it didn't materially affect what would have happened. So I would say for that reason, it was not a penalty. I also think if if VAR had intervened and decided upon multiple viewings that it was uh, 51% in favour of it being a penalty and given it that would have been yet another huge reason why why VAR is morally wrong because that, that that cannot be what it's for at all you have to err on the side of the referee on the pitch who has an anticipated what might happen and has an excellent view of what might happen so I was very very pleased with all elements of that uh, foul potential foul not a foul the referee looking at it closely Interesting, there were other incidents that people have, have pinpointed that could have perhaps gone to VAR, could have been a penalty, might not have been. But by the sound of it, Alison, it, it seems that you're really happy with how VAR was used in that Champions League final. Yeah, it was a, it was a decent um, showcase. Because I think, we're, well, I'm certainly worried about VAR next season and the fact that, you know, uh, we've been told us here in England, we're getting it wrong and we've got to use it more and, you know, I'm worried about it. Um, but I think it, it did show that, for, I think it was a good sign, signposting to referees that, that you are not, you are not becoming less important, you are becoming more important. And if you can, if you can show you're officiating a game with authority and your positioning is good, then VAR is not there to contradict you. 
And maybe that means the way forward to try and save VAR is that uh, referees feel a, they can have a better relationship to the official behind the screen and maybe they are the ones to suggest if they sometimes would like to see something on the pitch side monitor and that if you can develop a good rapport with the person on the monitor and feel that the deference is towards the on-field official so that we don't evolve into a state where the referees are just just there to, to, to blow the whistle and wave their arms in the air. They are actually doing something and that their ability counts, their, inte- their match intelligence counts. I think that one incident actually is, is, is a godsend for those people who are worried about too much interference. Because who do you... I don't, I don't, I don't want... I don't want football to be about reruns and reruns and reruns and taking the view that if you had the ability that 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 the, that the human being does not have on the pitch if you can spy some little little flick of a toe that it might have you know might mean something other than what anyone else in the stadium saw at the time I, I I'm really uncomfortable about where that leads the game actually I don't think the tr- I don't I don't think the truth lies in watching something over and over again. The truth lies in a referee doing what Osato did, which was take responsibility for the game. And I like I like that a lot. So overall it was a good night from all the officials then. Yeah well I don't other than that being a yeah that was the main uh official talking point. Um, I can't think of any other point during the final where I thought, oh, the officials are spoiling the game or, mm. oh, VAR's spoiling the game. So maybe you could say, oh, well, that's because there weren't that many <laughs> weren't that many goals or there wasn't as much goal malfaction as we were expecting and there was only one real big penalty shout. But I think I, think I actually forgot about VAR. So that's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> a good thing for you, Alison, that is for yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, well, in today's times, Tony Cascarino has picked out uh, Kylian Mbappe and Neymar's performances as major reasons behind PSG's defeat. He was surprised that Neymar was deployed as a centre-forward and that Mbappe suffered from an injury-hit season where he simply wasn't able to find his World Cup-winning form again when he needed it most. Tom, why do you think perhaps Mbappe and, and Neymar underperformed? I think it's a little harsh to say that they did, actually. I mean, I think particularly Neymar had quite a good game in parts, and I actually feel a little bit sorry for him. It's almost the kind of inverse uh, argument about Barcelona these days where people kind of assume that because they've got Lionel Messi, they are still the great Barcelona. I think there's still a, li- still a little bit of um, assumption that if you have Mbappe and Neymar in your team, they should automatically score a hat-trick each, each game. I think Neymar had quite a good game. Most of the chances that PSG created, he was involved in. Uh, was it not? Were it not for Manuel Neuer, he would have had a, probably had a goal in the first half. I think Mbappe was a little bit disappointing. He had that kind of shot from about ten yards, which you'd hope he'd probably back himself to score most times. But I think it's a little bit harsh, and I think Neymar gets a little bit embroiled within the PSG narrative of loads of money, no one wants them to do well, which I agree with Alison from before. I think that is is waning slightly, but I think he still gets a little bit of uh, 
unfair kicking, not just from defenders on the pitch, but also from people off it as well for not not producing. You know, he's not he's he's not beaten three men and put one in the top corner. Therefore, he's been rubbish. I don't I don't I think we we're beyond that in terms of being able to analyse a football match. So I I, actually, I actually don't quite agree with Tony. But do you think Tom that Neymar? See, I'm surprised you said that slightly because I thought Neymar was practically anonymous in the first half, particularly, and that was because he was being played centrally, which isn't his forte at all. And no wonder he relatively underperformed. Mm. Do you not feel he was yeah, just not involved enough? Yeah, perhaps that's part of it as well. I think my point was more that it gets put on Neymar as his um, his fault, if you like. Um, whereas, as you say, you know, it, it was a, perhaps a tactical mistake. And also there is, there is an element with, when you look at that PSG team, what Bayern did brilliantly was that they were fully aware that the danger came largely just from that front three and that means that you can tactically exploit that by going giving the ball allowing the midfielders like Ander Herrera and Marquinhos who are both quite defensive minded perhaps to have the ball in slightly more safe in the knowledge that you're not going to be under under threat so he he may have been disappointing in the sense that he wasn't on the ball enough but that I don't think that's his particularly his fault and I think that the odd time that he did get the ball he actually showed that, you know, if uh, Tuchel had found a way around Bayern's defensive work, uh, he might have been able to influence the game a bit more. Do, do you at all feel that uh, Neymar's histrionics has also didn't really hold him in good stead? If you looked on Twitter, which I know is no bar for us to be measuring anything on, but my goodness, people were lamenting a lot of things that he was doing on the pitch, trying to get players booked, going down too easily. He doesn't really help himself, does he, Tom? He doesn't know, but again, I feel we live in this age of where certain stigmas or certain narrative gets attached to fo- to certain footballers, and that stays with them wherever. And if you go on Twitter, you will find people so quick to post a clip, recording a GIF, anything about a certain player. You know, there, there's a brigade of people who seem intent on pursuing the idea that Raheem Sterling can't score goals when he scores goals every single season. Um, Neymar definitely uh, has had his moments with diving and histrionics, particularly in previous World Cups and with Brazil. But he's definitely not the only one. And he's also a magnificent footballer. And I just think sometimes it's just a bit of a kind of lazy debate around him when it comes to those certain things. Also, I think, Natalie, if you looked at the end of the game, the amount of love Mm. and consoling that went on, just purely for him from the Bayern camp was yes. instructive, I think, that, that he hadn't been a, a horrible, needling, diving, annoying player, that they admired his skill and felt slightly sorry that someone of that, you know, that amount of ability it, it yet again fallen short. So uh, who's at fault for this? Is it the players or is it the manager, Thomas Tuchel, Alison? Uh, I would say it's not the players. I would say it's partly Thomas Tuchel and partly just the way PSG have been run for well forever. But they 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 have lack of patience and they um, they hire to win the Champions League and then fire when they don't and then spend a lot of money and there's no there's no great sort of. Uh, pattern to it it's just done in a sort of wild desperation and Thomas Tuchel's just the latest 
manager in that. I think he'd probably done extremely well to get them to the final. And then once there, made a few peculiar decisions. I, I, Neymar is good when he's running at people and, um, you know, he's, he's got beautiful balance and he can open up, open up the best defences. But so why play him centrally? Do not understand that. I don't understand why they didn't, why they had De Maria up against um, Alfonso Davis because he, he, he pushes up the pitch so far that you could actually have exploited that if you'd had um, Mbappe's pace up against him. Didn't do that. I just felt it was just, it, it, for some reason, Tuchel sort of nullified his, his best assets in that way. Mm. That's not to say they didn't, they didn't all play well, especially in the first half. But if you think about how the best chance came to De Maria and he was... He wasn't positioned properly because, you know, he just—he's trying to readjust his feet. That shouldn't have happened. Why, why, you know, it just felt like the balance of the front line, a brilliant front line, was wrong. And that—that that sort of minutiae is down to the manager. But I, I think I think he has to be given credit for getting them further along than his predecessors. So Bayern Munich are the champions of Europe and the first winners from outside England or Spain since 2013. But has the balance of power in Europe started to shift towards Germany or in what has been an incredibly unusual season, have Bayern Tom simply benefited from it? I think it's a little bit unfair to say that, you know, the strange way in which this season has finally come to an end is played a part in Bayern's success. I think... We talked about it earlier, the the wins that they've had in the Champions League. As I said earlier, I think actually the Bundesliga is an incredibly strong and challenging league. I think they just deserve all the credit. And I think we talked about it on Thursday's show with Gregor that there's something about um, German football at the minute. And Alison alluded to it earlier. It's from that kind of stereotype of the pragmatists and getting the job done. There's something joyful and fresh and attacking um, about the way that mo- lots of the best teams in Germany play. And I think that is um, having a mutual benefit of raising the performance of all the teams near the top of the table. Um, so I, w- I would say that the balance of power is switching slightly towards Germany, but there is, uh, as, I, as I've said before, I think you know Liverpool, it would have been fascinating to see Liverpool, for example, mm. up against Bayern Munich. I think that would have been a great game. I think it's fair to say that the both of you believe that Bayern were worthy winners when you considered their run in this competition but when you assess all the strong sides and squads who has the best do you think Alison in Europe? Well I think that's a in a weird way that's a strange question because you can you can you can judge if you if you just re we're in danger of just following the narrative and saying well Bayern have just won the Champions League, so, duh, you know. <laughs> but coming into the Champions League finale, if you like, is Manchester City was still considered to have the strongest squad. I still think if you were to sit down with pen and paper and, and compare everybody in each squad, you'd say, well, you know, City should have done better. But does the fact... It's a philosophical question, isn't it? If, is, does the fact that City didn't do well, as well as they should have in the Champions League, automatically relegate them from being considered having the strongest squad? 
uh, do, can you only be considered to have a strong squad if you have a big squad and you win it? I don't. You see, see what I mean? I just, mm-hmm. I just feel, I just feel, it's an odd question because it's not about. It's in a way, it's not about the squad. It's about how you, how you utilize it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you, anyone at this moment in time, can argue against the way that Bayern are run and have progressed through the season and right you know as I say right from the the moment we got football back playing they have been the shining light in everything domestically and in European football so in that sense and you know in that sense I can't imagine there are many players in that team that any other club wouldn't say yes we'll have him so you Probably yes, but I feel slightly stupid saying it because, of course, they've just won the Champions League. So I'm bound to say that, aren't I? So is it? You, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm slightly hamstrung by what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's think about your own team then, Liverpool, Alison. Are you confident that they can recapture their dominance next season? Obviously, they won the Premier League this time around. Had won the Champions League the previous season. It didn't go quite according to plan on the European front for them this time around, but can they get back to, to winning the European Cup once more? Yeah, of course they can, because it was a, an odd blip that they weren't they weren't there in Portugal to begin with. It was just, it was just you know, Adrian in goal uh, against Atletico had a mare, and that happens, and sometimes quirky things happen and you're, you're, you're knocked out of the competition albeit over two legs, so I wouldn't claim it was just that. I think Atletico um, outwitted us on that occasion over two legs. But I, I think we I think, I think, think we were fairly confident going back to Anfield that we would, with the fans and everything, it would have been fine, but it couldn't be fine when your goalkeeper makes a few mistakes. I'm really confident because Liverpool were not in Portugal just because of, of a couple of, of goalkeeping mistakes, basically, and you can't you can't say they're on the slide because of that at all. And I can you know quite a lot of the time I was watching the tournament and I was thinking, oh this really suits Liverpool. It's a shame not here. I think they would have entertained and brought another level. And if you start thinking like that, you know they've they've you know they've got it. That just just hasn't disappeared. I think they would have. Um, I think they would have done well in Portugal, and I think they'll do well in the competition next season. I know it's really hard, we know history-wise, to, to defend the Champions League trophy, Tom. But do you think you've seen enough of Bayern to, to suggest that they actually they, they could go all the way next season and defend it? I think so, definitely. I think one of the things um, Alison was kind of alluding to there was that in modern football, having talented players is, you know, is only half the battle, if not even less less than half the battle these days. You know, we've talked about it so many times on the podcast this season. Successful teams have a style of play, an ethos, a group mentality. You know, buying star players just simply isn't enough these days. If you were to lay out the squads of Liverpool and say Juventus uh, or Real Madrid, would you say that Luka Modric is a better player than Giorgini Wijnaldum? Potentially, a lot of people would argue that. I know most modern managers would probably have Wijnaldum in their team. So what Liverpool and Bayern and all the most successful teams of the last few seasons have had is a collective group mentality. They've been strong as a squad. They've got a clear style of play. 
they know how to win games even in difficult circumstances like Bayern did, like Liverpool did throughout the Premier League season. So I would uh, put good money not only on Bayern being a strong force next season, but on Liverpool giving them a good run for their money too. Mm-hmm. Well, the match winner, Kingsley Coman, was given the Man of the Match award in Lisbon, but Bayern's midfield maestro, Thiago Alcantara, also caught the eye and has been linked with a move to Liverpool this summer. The Spanish passmaster with Brazilian roots and a Barcelona upbringing found the key pass to release Coman in a cagey and tight contest, as we know. Now, at 29... He's been reluctant to sign a new contract with just a year remaining on his current deal and Bayern realise they might have to sell. Liverpool appears to be the preferred destination and his deep-lying playmaking qualities is something Klopp's side lack. Uh, Alison, would you like to see Thiago at Anfield? Yes, please. Yes, thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> Job done. Ting, ting on the tail. Yes, you'll have that. I'll have that. Uh, I'll have two. I'll have two of him. Uh, no, no, he was, he was, he was excellent in the final and... He's been excellent for quite a long time. And I just think, wow, you know, he's got that Barcelona background, which means he's used to playing in a 4-3-3 if Liverpool carry on playing in that formation. Plus, he's sort of allied to everything that you get if you're part of the, the Bayern setup as well. Hardworking and intuitive and a certain ability, you know, he's given the freedom to interpret the game, so he can, he's, he's, te- he's technically very good, he's got good close control, but he's allowed to be able to spot the run. And I just think, I just think, if you if you think of that pass he made for the build-up to the goal that Bayern scored, if you think about the runs ahead of him from Mane and Salah and so on, he will just have such fun in a Liverpool team that there's a lot there's a there's a sort of new level of him to be able to express himself I think whilst also making sure he's got the work rate that Klopp demands and so on and I just I can just sort of picture those occasionally stodgy games where Liverpool come up against a team that just decides it wants to defend 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 I think he might be the ideal cog in midfield to take control and find the pass or find that run out of a congested midfield because his close control is superb um i think it'd be great and also i also love the way his demeanor i like the fact he looks really serious and like he means business i think he would bring an aura to um i think he's got a sort of virgil van dyke aura and a a sort of uh chavy ability and I don't know he's a mixture of all your favourite players I think I think he could be quite quite an addition not just to Liverpool but to the Premier League Sounds as though you're beginning to dream Alison about Thiago (laughs) In my (laughs) head in my head he's there in my head I can see him in the Liverpool shirt just the heart that needs convincing and that will only be happening when that deal is signed of course um but Tiago averaged 82.6 completed passes per 90 minutes in the Bundesliga this season that's the most of any regular midfielder uh, in comparison Rodri and Ilkay Gundogan completed the most passes per 90 minutes by midfielders in the Premier League followed by Chelsea's Jorginho and Matteo Kovacic no Liverpool player came close in the statistics due to the focus of their play being on their wings now, Alison, this is a Liverpool side that has been so successful in the Premier League. So could bringing in someone like Thiago upset their rhythm? No, I don't I don't think so. I think um I think what I think it's probably 
instructive that Klopp is looking at that as someone with those stats, actually. Mm-hmm. What, Klopp, what Klopp's done in his... He sort of evolved the team in a substantial yet uh, clever way each time. So he, the, the, the last big tweak Klopp made was to allow his team not to have to press, press, press relentlessly. He knew that was just asking too much. So they have periods in matches where it stopped being heavy metal football and just became a gentle concerto type thing. And then he's, um, I think the next thing he has probably has to do to, to surprise people more than anything. You know, you don't, you, you don't want to be the same entity in a new campaign. You've got you're already you've got everyone you're already the team everyone wants to beat because you're the champions, but you don't want teams thinking well okay we've worked them out now. You want to offer something different, and I think um, as I said before I think there will be certain games where Tiago may not be may not be ideal because of just 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 because of the the opposition, but I think he will offer. He will offer something that Liverpool don't have now in the games that are congested, um, and uh, you know, just now and again, that you do look at Liverpool midfield and think, oh, what would they be like if there was just dash more authority and creativity in there? And Thiago would bring that, but I also think he would fit in and be just just sort of that sort of workmanlike mechanical element that. That, that sometimes you get from the Liverpool midfield. I think I think he'd fit in really well. I don't. I just don't. I don't. I think I think if he, if, if he bought three of three Tiagos, which I have indicated I'd like, but if I think <laughs> if he did buy, if he did buy three of them, then yes, I think then you'd have to say, oh, there's a there's a change of style here. Mm. But just 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 having him as as I don't know, making making Liverpool just. Just that team likely to get 101 points, I think, probably. <laughs> uh, let me ask Tom, and I'll, I'll come to you in a moment, Alison, for a neutral perspective. When you look at that Liverpool squad, we know they've achieved great things this season, but where would they need to strengthen, Tom? I think Thiago joining is a terrifying prospect for um, all the <laughs> opposition because I think Alison suggested the only times they looked like they were struggling was when, you know, Salah couldn't get into the game and Mane couldn't get into the game and Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold weren't finding their passes. So Thiago would take them to another level. I'd say maybe central defence. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Virgil van Dijk is almost certainly the best centre-back in the world. You'd hate to see what would happen if he had a bad injury for a few months in the same way that Americ Laporte did for Manchester City because... I'm, I'm not too sure that Liverpool centre-backs would look anywhere near as strong without Virgil van Dijk. I'm not suggesting that there is another one out there because, um, as we know from various discussions about the Premier League and top sides, there aren't that many good centre-backs out there. So uh, if they could find the next kind of Virgil van Dijk out there or, or a younger version, um, I think the centre-back position could be one for them to strengthen. But I also think it's you know they've got people like Minamino, uh, who they signed in January, didn't really get a game. I think he's going to be an exciting player for them this season um, and will be that kind of cliched, like a new signing um, type thing. Rian Brewster might even also get a few games for them, depending on whether Klopp decides that he's ready for the first team. So I think they've actually got a few bits of strength and depth in places um, if they added to their midfield. But I'd say centre defence is maybe the only area that they could mm. uh, bolster a little. 
Yeah. So, so Alison, we know you want Tiago, Tiago, Tiago. So that's three. Um, but d Tom makes sense, doesn't he? he? Talking about improving central defence. Well, if if that player exists, then sure, snap him up. I don't think he does, though. And I just, I don't. Yeah, we. I agree. It's a horrifying prospect. The idea that something bad would happen to Virgil van Dijk and so I'm not going to think about it but I don't agree with Tom when he says Minamina might look like a new signing I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen enough to suggest that he'll be a, 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 a dominant player up front for Liverpool I think if you were to give me if you were to give me 90 million quid and then say you've got to hand it over to Liverpool uh, but you can determine what they spend it on I think I'd probably pick Raul Jimenez because I think he's an astonishingly good striker, obviously, with Premier League experience with Wolves. And I think he could just sort of have a couple of amazing seasons playing even better than he has if he was in a team like Liverpool. That's, I mean, that would be my greedy, yes, please. <laughs> also, I think Firmino, although everyone loves him and his intuition and his style and his technique are astonishing, he's just not, he just doesn't score enough, I think. I think we need probably to boost the forward line. Are you ending Roberto Firmino's career at Liverpool here, Alison? Because that's no, no, I'm that's quite a claim. Quite a claim. <laughs> I'm aware it might. No, but it, I, 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 if if there's going to be a drop off, I wonder if that's it. I wonder if it's relying on the front three as it stands, producing enough goals. Come on, that's it's, it's traditional. Liverpool managers they have to make difficult decisions. It, we've, Liverpool, Liverpool managers have always done that. They've always brought in up front, and fans have thought, "What really? I thought we were perfect." This is what happens. So Raúl Jiménez to Liverpool. Weirdly, he's not he's not linked at all, and I think I think that's the price tag because I think he's twenty nine, something like that, and it's a lot of money for a twenty nine year old. Okay. All right. So up front for you, but defensively, Tom, you think they're a little bit, well, they need need improvements on the off chance that something could happen to Virgil van Dijk. The Champions League final signalled the end of what has been a remarkable and marathon 2019-20 season. Indeed, here's a fun fact for you. Robert Lewandowski turned 32 this month, but he was only 30 when the season began. It's certainly one we will never forget, though not for all the right reasons. And with the Community Shield, the traditional season curtain raiser taking place on Saturday at Wembley between Arsenal and Liverpool, we haven't got long to wait. Several temporary rules were implemented following the suspension of football for three months, but it is understood that these rules will not be extended into next season. So... Shall we see if we enjoyed some of those temporary ones? Having five substitutes, we knew this was a temporary change in the rules which were implemented to protect players' fitness following the three-month suspension, but Premier League clubs have voted against the continuation of the five subs rule in a shareholders' meeting in early August. Alison, did you like the five subs option? No, not at all. I mean, on lots of levels. First of all, practically, if you're doing a match report, it's an absolute nightmare when there is this flurry of changes when you're trying to write your clever intro. So no, just too much admin from that point of view. Also, I do know from a sort of general fan's point of view, uh, never before have I sat with, with people watching a game and they've said, oh, I didn't realise, who's that? When? When did he come on? I thought, you know, it's it's hard to get a grip of in a way what's going on uh, it's it, it, they happen in these flurries towards the end and it's just sort of um 
discombobulating really and also as we know everyone practically everyone agrees it's just uh, unfair that you know you, you'd have a big club with lots of resources and big names on the bench it just means you know the rich get richer and, and, and get more points and the clubs that are, are well run and, and do the best they can with, with their squads they're, they're put at a disadvantage because they've, they've got they haven't got five great subs on the bench to start with. So it's a no, no, no and a no from me. <laughs> what about drinks breaks, Tom? We know that they were introduced within each half in order to help players boost their fitness and, and deal with the heat um, of the English summer. But that's not going to be happening in 2020-21 season. What did you make of those drinks breaks? I mean, they, the first thing to say is that they weren't really for any kind of drinking or anything like that they they quickly became tactical discussions um, amongst the managers and their players what I would say is that I don't think much is going to change even though there won't be a referee's whistle and a right lads go and have a drink these kind of breaks have been happening for quite a while even you know down at the level that Lincoln play at you know it only needs a player to go down suggesting that he might have pulled a hamstring referee stops the game physio runs on to talk to that one player all the other 10 players go and pile around the benches, have a drink, have a chat. You know, the manager gets stuck into the left back and says, you've got to stop those balls over the top. The the orchestrated drinks break might be coming to an end, but I don't think we're going to see the end of this kind of stopping of the play, you know, when things aren't quite going quite right. So in a way, I would rather have they just kept them in a kind of, you know, clear and honest kind of way rather than seeing the kind of falling over than histrionics and the faking of injuries in order to get a drinks break and a tactical time out if you like almost like basketball VAR Alison I mean it's just fallen to you but um, we're, we know there's going to be a heavier reliance on pitch side monitors next season which will be consulted to analyze those subjective decisions in three crucial areas goals red cards and penalty kicks does that make VAR a little bit more palatable for you if it means, oh, we're giving back more responsibility to, and power to the on-field referee, then yes, I suppose it does slightly. I would much rather a referee overturned his original decision because he's looked at it again and it is he who has decided, ah, if only I'd been stood three feet further to my left, I might have seen that. That's a shame. Oh, look, I can change it now. That's fine. I, I mean, it's not fine. I don't want VAR to exist, but it's fine it, 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 as, as a as a as a theme. If if, if it does that, because as I've indicated earlier, if that has a knock-on effect of making referees just re-engage more rather than doing this, well, it's okay. It doesn't matter what happens next because the cameras will will sort it out. We don't want that to happen. So yes, if if pitch sign monitors, but I I just don't believe. I just do not believe that a referee can stride over to a pitch side monitor and not feel obliged to overturn the decision. I think it's too hard. It's really hard for him to decide that everyone thinks I've got this wrong. I'm being told I should go and look at it again. The crowd are making noises when the crowd are back and he can, he can look at it. And even though someone else is saying, I think you might want to look at that again. He's thinking, no, I'm I'm really happy with what I did. You know, I think if you analyse all uses of pitch side monitors, it's really unusual for the referee to watch again and stick with his decision, which kind of makes it pointless 
because he's he is he's basically saying oh somebody's watched this again I, I must have got it wrong so I, I mean if it but but in in broader terms if it means referees feel more empowered again then then it's a good thing yeah and the last one I want to mention is the one-leg knockout ties in Europe. And I actually want both of your opinions on this one. As we saw in the Champions League and Europa League, uh, the format for the competitions was altered to one-off games to ease the schedule. UEFA president Alexander Seferin says it's a format the authorities might consider revisiting as teams this year have had to go for it, making for a, a better spectacle, perhaps. Tom. You're a Lincoln fan. I'm a Brentford fan. We're not involved in these crazy European Cup nights. But have you enjoyed these one-off games? Is it a change that you would welcome? Not at all, no. I think, as you say, the Champions League, to me and you and other, lots of other fans across the country, is great because, one, we get to see lots of brilliant players competing that we don't normally. They're playing against English teams. They're playing on in the week. Uh, we switch on our tellies and go, my God, what a great player he is. I've never heard of him. Um, but also, I think if you look at the great Champions League nights that we talk of in the last 10, 15 years, I think a lot of them were so great, principally because they were over two legs. Uh, if you think back to Manchester United, Juventus, and semi-final in, even in 1999, that kind of battle back and forth. I think the first leg, United equalised quite late on for one all. Then that second leg with Roy Keane, Heroics, etc., etc. Liverpool have had some great two-legged ties in Europe over the last few years. That, that tactical battle over how you play the first leg, whether you're home and away, it, it all just adds to the drama and the intrigue. And I think having a one-off match would, would spoil, would, take, would lose so much of the theatre and the drama that comes with the Champions League. Mm. So I, I would be strongly in favour of keeping them at two legs. It's interesting, isn't it, Alison? Because actually, when I was sort of considering this question, I was thinking, I've loved this format as it's been because I've loved the fact that teams have had to go for it. We haven't had that cagey first leg and let's take it home for that second leg and change things around. From a fan's perspective, I totally understand why they would want two legs because they want to be involved in those European nights at Anfield, at Old Trafford or, or wherever it is. Would you be welcome to a change in how the format is? Or, or are you just like Tom, believing that actually, no, those European Cup nights are very special? No, Tom's spot on. I mean, you know, we create, an, create another competition where, the, the, I mean, it's ridiculous. But we end up having bidding to host it, wouldn't you? And it would just become like, um, well, like the World Cup or European Championships. It would just become uh, a, a big logistical nightmare and you would lose all that matters about club football that's the point isn't it it's club football and your fans think they've played a part you're all in it together so when a team overcomes an away leg deficit they do so because of them being urged on by the fans and it's just a different competition if you have um, I agree, it's worked better than anyone expected under dreadful circumstances. And I think anyone involved can claim to, it, that it was a success. But not, it's not, not, not something you want to replicate. It's, it's hopefully, hopefully a one-off or maybe two years we have to do it. But no, this is not what European competition is about at all. I don't, I would really, really object to anyone saying... And, 
it's just a bit... Um, it's like getting a sugar rush, really, if you think you can only cope with a, a, one, a one-off game. It's like you don't really like football, if you think that, because <laughs> the football is, is about the, the psychology and tactics of a two-legged game and the travel. And there's also the culture and that joy of the draw and, you know, how, where you will be travelling. And as, as a, you know, as fans who, who, who's, you know, the highlights of lots of people's lives is the trip they made to Rome or to Berlin or Munich or Paris or wherever. It's, those are the things that, that matter, not some odd neutral ground where, you know, getting tickets is a nightmare and uh, hotel prices are already tough enough. They'll just go through the roof if you had a, it all in one, one sort of city. So I, don't, I just think it would create more problems once fans are back and deny the world of some of the greatest tactical masterclasses in footballing history. Well, it has been an unusually extended season and this summer will be the shortest ever break between the end of the current season and the start of the next. We've already mentioned that this weekend it is the Community Shield. Uh, Alison, do we expect players to struggle to keep up with the demanding schedule? Well, they will struggle if if their clubs don't uh, give it some thought. And I, and I think they're capable of doing that, actually. There's an awful lot of backroom staff at clubs, even some of the smaller ones. They, they, there are a lot of people employed um, to look at uh, algorithms and monitor the fitness of players and how they're coping. It might, it might mean that some clubs decide to rip up the way they do training and focus more on just, just being able to recover after match day and build up again to the next game. They're not going to be playing intense football every other day. That is not going to happen. So there is an ability, I think, to adapt your coaching methods, your recovery methods to fit with the season. Those clubs who don't have the intelligence to do that, those are the ones where the players will suffer. You can't squeeze in your normal routines into a more tightly packed schedule. But I don't I don't think it's going to be so ridiculously tightly packed that you can't make sure that the players are just given, you know, it might be as simple as just cutting the type, cutting down the amount of training or cutting the type of training. There are ways of doing it. There definitely are. And um, as I say, that might sound elitist, but I do believe, you know, even clubs in in the lower divisions have, have people with that intelligence to be able to do that I think what about a a club like Lincoln Tom how do you think they're gonna cope with the demand that's put upon them well they need to sign a few more players first (laughs) we've only just about got a squad of about 16 players at the minute but I'm sure that'll change in the coming weeks I think um they'll they'll cope fine because I think we've got a clever young coach in Michael Appleton who will do the sort of things that Alison's talking about but I do think that, that um, it will be a struggle further down the pyramid and I would hope that we won't get scenarios where you get a horrible situation of where managers are having to make kind of almost like a tactical decision about the way a team plays in terms of the intensity levels and the tactics on offer, i.e. you know, maybe 
play a game of just parking the bus and not trying to press and things like that, just in order to preserve fitness levels or perhaps because the striker's got a tight hamstring. Um, one positive that I hope we might see higher up the pyramid is that we get to see some of this young talent that are in so many of these Premier League academies and that managers are willing to rotate a bit more and play some of these young English uh, players that um, they've clearly got in their ranks because you see them go out on loan to the championship clubs and things like that. So I would hope that would be a positive, but I am slightly fearful about what the implications might be as we hit the dreaded English winter of football and, uh, you know, tight hamstring starting to come into play and things like that. But I'll 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 try and be positive because Lincoln are going to sign a couple of players and no one's <laughs> going to get injured and it's all going to be fine. Well, I know if, uh, looking at, for example, Brentford's December schedule, I think there's something like eight eight games that have to be packed into just December. There is a lot of games to be played in a very short space of time. Is it all viable, Alison, further down the leagues, do you think? Yeah, because I think the alternatives are worse. You know, they have to play to exist a lot of clubs and they have to hope that they find a way to get fans back safely and make sure they have sponsorship deals and whatever else income-wise they need to survive. And also I think there is a newfound sense of what is your duty in these peculiar times. And I think if you can bring entertainment via football and passion and diversion, um, then you have a you, you should you should you should do it. Yes, it might be difficult. It might not be how you want to run your season. But I think everybody in every industry are operating, you know, teachers are not operating the way they'd like to. But so just I just think we everyone has to have a different mindset. These are difficult times and if we're offering some good news in bad circumstances, then we have a duty to try and make it work. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Alison and to Tom as well. Remember to subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for award-winning journalism on every platform. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back soon. Take care. Thank you.